those sort of things that I do to adorn myself, a lot of folks are going to read them, you know, in light of my identity as a, a Black woman. So my nails become red in a particular way and, and my tattoos will become red in a particular way. And the way that I wear my hair, you know, and my septum piercing will be red in a particular way. And, and I'm comfortable with that. And I'm happy with that. This is season two of Be The Change, a podcast that shares interviews with changemakers about how they became and are becoming the change they want to see in the world. I'm Savala Nolan, director of Berkeley Law's Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice and author of Don't Let It Get You Down, essays on race, gender, and the body. This season of Be The Change is a collaboration with Berkeley Voices, a podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs at UC Berkeley. In this episode, I sit down with Kiara Bridges. Kiara is a professor of law at UC Berkeley School of Law and a powerful public intellectual who speaks widely and writes incisively on race, class, reproductive justice, and the intersection of the three. She's also the author of three books, most recently, Critical Race Theory, A Primer. During our conversation, I speak with Kiara about the process of claiming and using your voice as a prominent Black woman. We talk about the complexities of presentation and adornment for members of marginalized communities, especially in academia, and about approaching your work with a sense of liberation, creativity, and hustle. We also talk about getting comfortable with the Socratic method and what it feels like to start law school with no idea what's going on or what you've gotten yourself into, but ultimately finding your way. Kiara, thank you so, so much for joining me today for this Be the Change episode. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yes, it is. Any any excuse or chance I get, I will take. I want to start by asking you um, how law school helped you become comfortable having a public and, you know, I would say powerful or even prominent voice. And also maybe how law school um, hindered that for you, right? Like if there were ways that law school made it harder for you to embrace the power of your voice or to take the microphone or step up to the podium, you know, especially as women of color, we can have experiences in law school that are affirming, but also some that are not terribly affirming and that are even kind of damaging, and um, I'd love for our listeners to know a little bit about how your law school years helped and maybe, I don't want to say hurt, but for lack of a better word, um, made, it, made it more difficult for you to have the kind of voice that you have now, which is powerful and courageous and intelligent and unapologetic. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'll start with how law school was less than helpful and my becoming who I am today. And it doesn't really have anything to do with like voice. It has to do with like the way I think. And I think that 
I'm not saying anything particularly profound if I say that law school teaches you to think like a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. And thinking like a lawyer is is a skill, um, but it's also limiting, you know, and it forces you to focus on different things while, you know, on particular things while ignoring other things. It, you know, teaches you how to frame what is and is not important. And it's, it's sort of just like a disciplining of the mind, which is phenomenal, but also can be counterproductive when one is trying to think creatively um, mm. about how to use the law, you know, and, and sp- particularly how to use the law to solve, you know, some or to address some of the most enduring of, you know, our societal issues. And so it wasn't until I got to, so I went to law school first um, and I learned to think like a lawyer. And then, um, yes. congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, and after law school, I went to get my PhD in anthropology, which liberated me from some of the constraints that law school had imposed on the way that I think. Um, mm. And so it, it's the combination of, you know, the disciplining of law school with like the liberation of anthropological inquiry and investigation that, you know, had that both of them have produced me as like the particular legal scholar that I am. And so for listeners, you know, particularly those who are in law school, I kind of invite you to to be aware about what's happening in law school, you know, in terms of how we are particularly, you know, training you to think in a, in a specific way and to and to know that there are there that 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 imposes some types of limitations on how you will think. And there are, you know, classes outside of the law school available to you Mm. where you can use the tools that you have been given in law school and sort of release some of the more constraining aspects of those tools so that you can continue to think creatively, you know, as a lawyer. Um, But when it comes to, you know, how law school helps, I think I tell anybody who, (laughs) it's close enough to listen that I had a really rough time in my first year of law school. Like I thought that I had made a terrible mistake um, in choosing to enroll in, in law school. I thought that the admissions office had made a terrible mistake in admitting me. Like it was just, just, it was not obvious that this was my calling. And I understand Mm. now, like where I am in my career, that this absolutely is my calling. Like I was put on this earth to think about law and to teach law um, and to speak about law. Um, But when I was, when I was in my first year of law school, it was terrible. And I hated talking, like I hated the, the prospect of talking in front of my classmates. Like I hated the Socratic method. I hated the fact that, you know, professors didn't just use volunteers, that they would just cold call. Like, I hated all that stuff. Nevertheless, I do it in my classrooms now. Like, I'm a little mm. bit, I'm a lot less. <laughs> you joined the dark side, I Kiara. The dark side, but what the heck? I see the light in the dark. It was only because I was compelled to talk that I became comfortable talking. And it was only because, like, when my Socratic little back and forth went terribly and I forgot the holding or I misstated the issue or like, I, you know, I didn't realize that that was like a really important fact and it fell flat on my face in front of my classmates. Like 
it was those moments that made me say, oh, it's not that bad to fall. <laughs> like falling is actually not like the end of the world. Falling is kind of human. And so I became more comfortable. The more I did it, the more comfortable I became talking, the more comfortable I became failing, you know, like not, not achieving one's goals. And it kind of made me into the person who I am today, where I am long winded now. Like I, you know, people <laughs> ask me to shut up sometimes. And it was only because I was challenged in law school to, to speak. I have to say, hearing you talk about hating the first year of law school. It was very validating. I too hated the first year. I actually left. Well, it must've been a Civ Pro class, maybe the second week I got up and left in the middle with tears streaming down my face, just feeling like, what have I done? I don't belong here. This was a horrible mistake. The admissions committee made a mistake, you know? And I remember like inverse experience. Like I, I, arrived late to Civ Pro because I had been crying in the bathroom. <laughs> I, said, oh, no. I had to gather myself together and I arrived late and, you know, I jumped right in and started, I don't know, talking about personal jurisdiction or whatever it was we were talking about. Oh my gosh, too soon, too soon. <laughs> Not ready for the terminology. Okay, let me ask you this. So I remember my very first law school reading assignment and I went to Berkeley Law. Okay. Um, so probably, you know, a similar cohort, right? As you would have had at Columbia Law. Just Mm -hmm. super smart people, many of whom had some familiarity with the law outside of like people in their family being in the criminal justice system, which is my background. Don't know if that's yours at all. But I remember my first reading assignment, opening the book and, you know, reading an appellate opinion, but Mm -hmm. having literally no clue what I was reading, you know, and wondering, what is this? Is this an article? Is it a journal entry? Is this a a short story? Like, just having absolutely no familiarity with the material that that I was supposed to be mastering. Right. Were you that far outside of the field? Or were you like a little bit... Oh, I mean, I, so I remember specifically, you know how like the appellate opinions, they begin like with the judge's name. So it'll be like Bell, you know, comma J, because it's Judge Bell. I was like, look at this, all of the, like, was it just James? Is it Julia? Is it like, (laughs) I had no idea what that J meant. I thought it was their first name. And I thought it was such a coincidence that all of these folks writing these opinions, like had the same, like, you know, (laughs) initial for their first name. Oh my gosh. It was really like learning. And, and, you know, we say it often in law school, it's like learning a different language. But like, I was completely, I had no idea what I was (laughs) doing. I had no idea what I was doing. We had a, a course uh, that began before the law, like the actual like torts and Civ Pro and contracts. Um, it was like, I think three, two and a half weeks. And it was supposed to be like foundations of like, you know, mm-hmm. legal reasoning or law school classes or something. And they like helped us identify the issues and the holdings and, you know, all, you know, helping us learn how to brief a case. But I was, I, I still like didn't know what was happening. <laughs> like, I still did not know exactly how to read, what to read for the big old words. I remember prosecutrix. And I was like, what's who's a prosecutor? <laughs> like, and also you don't have time to like, well, I, excuse me, let me speak for myself. I didn't have time to like, look up what these words meant. So it really was like being thrown into the deepest of pools and being forced to swim or drown. Yeah, that was my experience. <laughs> 
same here. So if there's a listener out there who's, you know, just trying to keep their head above water in law school right now, A, reach out to someone if you haven't already, but B, like you're not alone and it in no way seals your fate as to, you know, how rich and successful your career will be. Absolutely. I, I want to just zero in a little bit on what you said about law school being this profound experience of disciplining the mind and then getting your PhD in anthropology as being this experience of liberation, uh, sort of intellectual liberation and expansion. And, um, you know, you, and I totally agree with the advice or the reminder that you gave, which is that law students should like venture beyond the four corners of the law school and, and not lose sight of a more expansive, way of analyzing problems. I mean, that is incredibly important. At the same time, you know, I took a fairly uh, expansive and liberated approach to my exams at the beginning (laughs) of law school. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't pay out, like it didn't pan out for me. It didn't pay off the way that I had hoped that it would. So, and now you're a professor, right? So you're grading these exams. I mean, you don't actually like on the exam, you want to see the discipline, right? Right. You don't want to see the expansiveness. And yet there's a tension because you want your students to not lose their ability to use many, many, many tools. I mean, is that a tension or do you just, it feels really different when you're on the professor side of things? Yeah, it is. Um, So I like to think of it as like toggling back and forth. Like I have the, legal theorist role and brain and mind. And then I have like the anthropological, you know, theorist brain and mind. And I think of them as like toggling back and forth. And, um, you know, I have tried in some, maybe in some parts of my career, I've been successful in kind of meshing the two, like looking at a legal problem anthropologically or looking at an anthropological problem legally. But I tend to think of it as, as toggling, like going back and forth between these two modes. And I think it's really important to know how to do both. Um, yeah. And so as it applies to to law school, like it's really important to know how to write a law school exam. Um, I remember when I wrote my note and I wrote my note on, it was called on the commodification of the black female body. Amen. <laughs> and it was about a market in, in fetal tissue. At the time, it was fetal tissue. It, it ultimately became like stem cells. But when I was in law school, like there was this big question about whether fetal tissue was going to be used as sort of, you know, what we use to essentially make medical breakthroughs. And I was thinking mm. about the modification of that. And so I wrote in a paper about that. And I, I remember thinking while I was engaged in this like exercise, I was like, I need to know how to write, you know, law review articles and law review. And even though the topic was my own and even though it was something that, you know, no one was touching in law review articles at the time, if you read my note, it is very standard. I comb through the literature. I do Mm. my analysis. I make sort of normative claims all within, you know, 25,000 words. So I think it's really important to, to learn how to do the conventions of 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 law exam writing or law legal you know scholarship 
And then it's also really important to learn how and to know how to be unconventional. And I think of I think of my book, so I have three now and I'm working on my fourth. And I think I look at them as like toggling. Like my first book is very much an ethnography, it's very much anthropology. My second book, I was like, look at me doing all this legal theory. Um, mm. Again, applying it to the things that I care about. I was, you know, and that book was about, you know, low income mothers essentially and, and the deprivation of privacy and privacy rights that they have to live with. And then my third book was, I don't know, it definitely wasn't anthropological. It was very, you know, much more, more legal. And my fourth book will be anthropological. So I, I don't, I think of, so how about this? I haven't yet figured out, right, how to be a lawyer while thinking and doing anthropological things. And so that's what, that's what the, that's what I, <laughs> that's the challenge I give to the next generation, right? The folks who are in law schools right now. Like, mm-hmm. how can you use these tools that I'm giving to you to, you know, be the change that we would like to see in the world? this idea of toggling back and forth and think about some questions of identity and Mm -hmm. our profession. So folks who are listening to this may or may not know that you are a Black woman and I too am a Black woman. um, And we are few and far between in our profession and, you know, in the law school, like the actual physical building of the law school where we work. Mm -hmm. I am curious for you, when do you most feel your race and your gender, you know, for better or worse, right? That's, there's not like a sadness built into that question. Right, there yeah. could be joy too. Um, but when do you most feel your race and your gender in the legal world, in the legal environment? Um, and there's so many little kind of tributaries to this, like, whether one tends to be more prominent, um, whether you take steps to kind of affirm and declare these aspects of yourself or to soften and mute them, and whether you find yourself, you know, toggling or code switching. Um, And, you know, I asked this question in the most, it's not a neutral question, right? But I ask it in the most neutral way possible. So I'm not at all asking you to kind of like, dig up trauma or, you know, set fire to your career by like, you know, I don't want that. I just, you know, I, I want um, to give you a chance and to give our listeners the benefit of hearing you speak from experience about having an identity that is um, not prominent, but nevertheless informs your work and uh, particularly in the law, which is a really complicated place right. for people of color and for 
uh, people of all genders who aren't cis men, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, have at it and dispute any premises that you felt like <laughs> I embedded in there unnecessarily, please. <laughs> no, I, um, so the question has got, you know, it really causes me to like, like reflect, which is good. Um, so I know that I really like being a black woman. Like I really, really do. Um, and yes, I do too. I just have to jump in and say, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Right. (laughs) Right. With all of the trials and tribulations. Right. Thank God I'm black and a woman. Okay. Back to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and I, and I really do celebrate, you know, that identity in the way that I present myself. So, um, and, you know, and it's so it's such an interesting question because a lot of, of what I do, I really think of it as like really individual, right? Like so I have a septum piercing and like mm-hmm. I don't think of that as speaking to any aspect of my identity. I like to think of it as just like me being quirky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I wear big earrings and I um like if you see me and my nails aren't done, like please avert your eyes because that was unintentional. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. And I, you know, I have tattoos and, and I have all of these things and, and I, you know, again, there's a part of me that is just wants to attribute that to like, oh, that's me being me. You know, my family calls me key, right? So that's key being key. I've always been like the weird one in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, then I know that those sort of <laughs> things that I do to adorn myself, a lot of folks are going to read them in, in line you know, or in light of my um, identity as a a Black woman. So my nails become red in a particular way and and my tattoos will become red in a particular way. And the way that I wear my hair, you know, and my septum piercing Mm -hmm. red in a particular way. So- And your earrings, right? Big old hoops? Absolutely. I'm rocking them right now. Like they will be red in a particular way. And, And I'm comfortable with that and I'm happy with that. And I feel- that that affirms my identity as a black woman. Like I, so thinking about like when I first started in the academy, I think I was doing a lot of, I know I was doing a lot more kind of just uh, diminishing or doing my best not to stand out, you know? and so the earrings didn't pop up until close to tenure, I would say. And, mm. you know, um, the nails were definitely muted. They were definitely rounded, you know, <laughs> nothing point. Right. So um, I think I was doing a lot of of just covering, I would even say, um, just, mm-hmm. you know, I, it wasn't like I, you know, by doing that, I thought I was going to hide the fact that I was a Black woman, but I didn't want to like underscore the fact that I was a Black woman. And I think that now at this point in my career, like I am affirming my identity by being like just who I am and 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 um, being unapologetic about it. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I know that I am unapologetic in who I am. I'm, I don't mute who I am through, you know, the way that I present myself in the space of the law school. In fact, I hope that it kind of makes it louder, right? It makes the fact that I'm a Black woman louder by me being completely, um, you know, who I am. Um, One thing, though, that I will note is that 
I use honorifics in my classroom. Um, I ask the, the students to call me Professor or Dr. Bridges, and I call them Mr. Miss Mix Doctor, you know, whatever honorific they prefer. And also some of them prefer no honorifics. And so I respect that. And the reason I do that is, is, is undoubtedly um, the fact that I am a Black woman. It's just different. It's just different for a, a student to call me Kiara. Um, Mm -hmm. because as you know, I don't have to tell you that black women, like our, 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 our status, like our place in law schools are, it's, it's contingent, right? It's not exactly in, in beyond, you know, beyond debate that we deserve to be here. And Mm -hmm. so because honorifics kind of connote respect and authority, like we're going to practice that a little bit by, by my students calling me doctor or professor. And I just like to return the, the requests that I've asked from them. I, you know, I do it by calling them Mr. and Miss and Nixon. Um, so the honorific thing is something where I, I consciously think about my identity as a black woman and um, think about how to demand, <laughs> command respect um, in a space that would not otherwise confer it to me because of black, because of my black womanhood. I absolutely relate to the honorific question, and I too insist upon being referred to as professor, at least in the classroom. Although I am a lecturer, I am not a Mm. tenured professor. Um, I still do insist upon that, at least in the classroom space. But unlike you, I don't return the favor. I guess I'm just power hungry, deep below the surface. I don't know. I'll have to. You're you're drunk on the power dynamic. I get it. It's no, no. I mean, hey, like you know, I've earned it. Like I don't know. Let me let me pour myself another glass, right? Um. No, I definitely do it in my lecture courses and my seminars because it's smaller and, you know, I'd like to think of it as more intimate. Um, You know, we actually do have more personal discussions um, in my seminar in terms of like students share personal information um, with their classmates. So it is more intimate. Um, I call them by their first names in there, but they still call me by professor or doctor. (laughs) So I guess I'm I'm drunk on power in my seminars. (laughs) Cheers. Okay. The other thing I want to say is thank you so much for describing um, kind of an arc or a process. Mm -hmm. You know, you you said at the beginning of your time in the academy, you were, I think you used the word covering uh, or, Mm -hmm. you know, doing a bit more covering than you are now um, and that your earrings and your nails became more kind of authentic to who you are as you approached tenure Um, And I fully, fully relate to that. I mean, I'm 13 years outside of my law degree, and it's only just in the past couple of years that I have really been able to kind of say, I'm female, I'm fat, I'm black, this is my body, this is my look, and I'm not interested in putting on a costume to kind of meet your norms, you know? Um, And so I love that folks who are hearing this, who may be wrestling with how to cover or display or declare their own identities that are marginalized in the legal community. You know, I love that they can hear that it's okay for there to be a journey Mm -hmm. and um, a process. I also wonder, you know, looking back, 
should I have started sooner? Could I have like, should you, or could you have, or is there a strategic reason to wait until you've amassed a little more power and security? Yeah. You know, and so you're not just kind of tiptoeing through the precarity of an early career at a law firm or in a university um, before you kind of let it all hang out. Like, is there some strategy or is it just sad that we had to wait years before we felt comfortable showing up in an embodied, authentic way? I wonder. Yeah, I I wonder. I wonder about that. Um, I... (laughs) So I know that I started getting, you know, more comfortable being who I am (laughs) Um, when my article got published in the Stanford Law Review. I think after Stanford picked up that first article, I was like, all right, let me put these earrings on. (laughs) (laughs) We have some bona fides, right? Like, you little gravitas. When my second book came out, I was like, all right, let me put these nails on. (laughs) No, so I I don't, so, you know, it's like a counterfact. Like, I don't know, like, whether the faculty, so I, you know, I came to Berkeley um, three years ago. So I, you know, was at another school for the first nine years of my legal career. And I don't know, right, if the faculty would have, um, accepted me as like a legitimate, serious, you know, legal scholar, if they were also having to figure out like, what's up with the hair? And like, what's up with the, you know, visible tattoos? Like, I, it's, it's kind of like, there is nothing objectively true <laughs> about legal scholarship. Like, just mm. because, you know, an article comes out in the Stanford Law Review or in the Harvard Law Review, it doesn't mean like, objectively, that is like, brilliant scholarship a lot of it is like perception and then like shared perception. And so, you know, when a whole bunch of folks share this perception, it becomes like, oh, that is a brilliant piece of legal scholarship Mm. because of like the subjectivity involved in evaluating like what's good and what's not good. um, I just didn't trust, right. That faculty to subjectively evaluate my scholarship while also trying to figure out whether um, like I was too black or too much of a black woman, right? So right. I just felt that the safest path for me was to establish, you know, my 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 fierceness, <laughs> right? Establish the fact that I write good, important things that the most elite of our journals think worthy of publication, that I write these serious books about serious legal questions, and it will make it harder for them to feel that my scholarship is unworthy because they're still wrestling with how I present myself. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like it's all in your head. I mean, there's reams of social science and studies that back this up, right? Mm -hmm. That how, how, when people perceive parts of your identity and impacts how they perceive your work. Um, Mm -hmm. So there, I think there is some, some strategy there for sure. And, you know, you've articulated that. And as I look back, yeah, there was definitely some strategy for me as well.
think a little bit about the work that you do and think about the audience. And maybe that means your peers, you know, your fellow fellow professors, or maybe it, it means a different group of people. It probably depends on the work. And what I'm thinking about is how, as Black women, we can be sort of called because of our own inner voice or asked by others to talk to really different audiences. You know, sometimes we're kind of brought into a room and asked to speak to a white audience about some area where we have real or perceived expertise. Other times we're asked or choosing or hoping to speak to fellow Black women in a way that feels like a closed circle, you know, where we we all kind of can let our hair down, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, there are audiences beyond both of those realms. Um, In your scholarly work, who are you writing for? Who are you trying to communicate with? And do you ever have to kind of wrestle with the question of who you're speaking to and for? Or do you just kind of sail smoothly from page to page until you get to publication? <laughs> um, yeah. What a, so I really think it depends on on what I'm writing. Um, and I should say, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, you don't just write. You're also interviewed. And, you know, I, I, I want to expand the question to just be your sort of outward facing yeah. work, not just your writing. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It's, you know, I, that's, again, it's a question that's, that's, you know, making me like reflect. Um, so sometimes, you know, specifically with writing, um, and also with speaking, um, I know that, you know, I'm intending sometimes to speak to late audiences. Um, mm-hmm. and other times I'm, you know, intending to speak to lawyers and law professors and, and, and legal theorists, um, so I, I definitely have that in my mind. Um, but I guess I know- what I'm asking, sorry, yeah. can I put a okay. finer point on it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. If I guess I'm sort of thinking about my own experience as a writer, and I don't write legal scholarship, but mm-hmm. um, there are times when I feel pressure mm-hmm. to speak for mm-hmm. Black women or two Black women, and I don't want to. (laughs) And there are times that I want to, but the format or the venue or whatever means I can't. Right. And I'm curious whether you bump up against that. And if you don't, you know, not a great question and we'll move on. But I'm really (laughs) speaking from my own experience and kind of just greedily wanting to know if you bump up against that too. Yeah, um, I imagine that sometimes I get invitations to speak or to write where it's like, all right, black lady writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here comes a black lady. She's about to do it, you guys. Um, and she's also going to represent all black women. I imagine that some invitations come through the door that are sort of premised on that. I don't, you know, I only do things that I want to do at this point. Like, mm. I, there's definitely there was definitely a time in my career where I felt like I had to say yes to everything. And I did say yes to everything. And I was, I was on the road, man. Like I was like Beyonce, like I was had like, a, you know, like a 50 city tour, like in a semester um, where I was just talking, 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 talking all the time and, and writing, 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 writing all the time. And, mm. and it was, it was exhausting. 
but I was also younger. So, you know, I could do it. I could do a red eye back then and like hop off the plane <laughs> and, and hit it. Um, right. And I don't, I probably could do it. I just don't want to do it at this point. So I say no to a lot of things. I probably say no to um, as many things as I say yes to at this point. I only do talking engagements and writing, you know, opportunities when I really want to do it, when I want to write something that's interesting to me or where I'll learn or, you know, talk to audiences where, you know, that I've never talked to before. And so that gives me an opportunity to not only, you know, have them learn from me, but, you know, I can learn from them. So I think that by protecting my time, (laughs) um, it allows me, it frees me from, you know, some of those, you know, those, those events or opportunities that really are more exploitative or, you know, really just using me as a way to check the box. Like we got one. So, yeah, I think that, I think that's how I navigate that difficulty. And was it just sheer fatigue that forced you to learn how to say no? Or did you, did you get to that point before you had to, you know? And if so, like what, 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 what gave you um, like the chutzpah to feel like you could say no or the yeah. sense of security that would allow you to say no and trust that something else is coming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, what is, yeah, that is, that is so, so this is amazing. Like, I feel like I'm in therapy right now. <laughs> You'll get my bill. No, I'm just kidding. I know. I know. So yeah, so they're definitely, had to, there had to have been a moment where I was like, it's okay to, to say no because something else is coming along. Because I, at the beginning of my career, I, you know, I thought this was it, right? Like they were inviting me because they heard my name and, you know, next year they won't know my name. And so let me, you know, get, you know, do this road show um, mm-hmm. while I can. But at some point I was like, no, <laughs> like, there, there will be more opportunities. This isn't, this isn't the only one. So I think it was a combination. So it was definitely fatigue. Like, I, I mean, I definitely remember, like, I was always at the airport. Like, I would actually get my nails done at the airport. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> I had a manicure spot in the airport. That's how, that's how often I was there. They're like, hey, Key. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey, you know, same thing as last week. Um, So, you know, that was, so it was definitely fatigue, but then also there was um, like a security that, that, you know, resulted from knowing that this isn't like my last opportunity. Another thing um, I became more sensitive to (laughs) in like, in, or just like legitimating my sense that I need to establish boundaries was that if something went wrong, <laughs> the only thing that these institutions could do was say, I'm sorry. And mm. so let me give you like a really um, good example or practical example of that. Like I have this very clear policy where I don't record my classes because I don't want there to be a record of me saying something that can be taken out of context, distributed, and then, you know, I become like the darling of the right-wing, you know, media ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so I don't record my classes because I don't want that to happen. And 
I also feel like it, it enables me to speak more authentically in class, right? Um, mm-hmm. It enables me to just be a better professor, right? Um, because I don't have to constantly think about like, this is on the record, this is on the record, this is on the record. Um, and so I had an opportunity to teach at another law school and the law school said, oh, we're, we record all of our classes here. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, I don't permit my classes to be recorded. And let me tell you why, right? You know, I talk about race, class, gender, sexual identity, gender identity, da, 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 da. And, you know, because of the sense of nature of our conversations, you know, uh, this, these are these are my concerns. I don't want there mm-hmm. to be a record. And then they, you know, it seems like they thought about it. And then they came back like a week later, like, yeah, well, you know, a lot of classes in our law school talk about race, class, gender, you know, gender identity, so on and so forth. So we're not going to make an exception for for your classes. And it was really like, I was like, I feel like I stepped into my womanhood because I was like, okay, thanks, but no thanks. Like, you guys have a great semester. Because if something happens, right, and that recording of me saying something that might be perceived as controversial, taken out of context, and then, you know, it's on Breitbart, the only thing that institution could say was, my bad, like, I'm sorry, like, oh, I didn't know, like, you, we, that, that was not our intention. So, like, my, like, physical and mental well-being would be, like, sacrificed, and the only thing that they can do is say, I'm sorry, so and that might take a minute. They it might, <laughs> might be a bumpy road before you got. I'm sorry. After they consulted with their lawyers, you know, a couple months later, they would say, "I'm sorry." And so, I just just knowing that I like I, I have to take care of me. <laughs> like I'm the only one who's going to take care of me as well as I could, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm the best situated to do that task. That has given me more it's it's made me less hesitant to, to say no i say no in a heartbeat in these days. <laughs> and then like no i start with no and then like <laughs> i say maybe <laughs> i love that start with no and then say maybe at least like internally i mean there's so many um Women of color, you know, that's what I'm really thinking about with this conversation, though. There's something for everybody here, no doubt. I mean, there's so many women of color, young lawyers and people who are in law school. And I use women, you know, as expansively as possible, who feel a lot of pressure to hustle, you know, and to just that to have boundaries is somehow um, a career limiting move. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. It's it's kind of an art and trial and error, I think, for us to figure out, you know, when hustling is good and when it's detrimental. Yeah. And I can't tie this up like with a pretty neat answer and a bow, but I guess what I want to suggest to folks who are listening is that it is a process. And mm-hmm. over time, I think you strengthen your sense of kind of you know, your city walls and who gets to come in and out or lure you beyond your own city gates. And there may well be people who are a little more seasoned in their career who can help you brainstorm and and figure that out. I mean, I'm not saying reach out to Kiara or me, you know, I'm not going to volunteer Kiara for that. But if you're experiencing that, know that people around you have experienced it too. And some of us have, have really gotten much better over the years at figuring out um, 
how to say no and still feel a sense of like abundance and security professionally. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, like, and I, I actually don't think that, and I, and I hope the audience that, you know, doesn't take your comment to be like that hustling and caring for yourself are like mutually exclusive. No, (laughs) certainly not. I mean, like like part part of the hustle is part of it when you have a goal, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Like I, I, you know, I work hard. <laughs> I work hard. Yes. Um, in fact, like I should probably work less, but I work hard at things that I love doing. And also it helps that I like, I'm a nerd too. So like I'm writing this book, my ethnography. Oh, I'm excited. Oh man. Yes. I got necropolitics in front of me. I'm going to dive into that book. Like I am. An, so like working is my self-care a lot of times but there are other times when working is like you know a drag it's it's exhausting um and it could be exploitative and so what i do is i try to eliminate the exploitative ones altogether um Mm -hmm. and then you know there's there are aspects of every job that's going to be a drag you Mm -hmm. could you know like you could open up your you know dream law office where you're only doing the type of work that you want to do and you're only representing clients that you want to represent and you're you know and you are the change that you want to see in the world and there are going to be parts of your work day where you're like mm, i can't like i don't want to do this yes. <laughs> like there's a reason they pay you to show up even if right? it's the best thing in the world absolutely so i think that the 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 work is to minimize, you know, the parts that are just draining and maximize the parts that really make you like hop out of bed in the morning. Yes. Hustle is so contextual, you know, and I'm a big believer that inspiration generally comes during work, not before Mm it. So if you want to feel inspired, like you got to get your butt in the chair and do the work or, you know, wherever your work takes place. Right. Um, so yeah, no, 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 definitely not saying don't hustle. I guess I'm saying be aware when the hustle is exploitation or mm-hmm. when it's like draining you and you don't feel good about it. Like, who are you hustling for? You know, yeah. are you hustling yes. on your own behalf? Then that's great. If you're not like, you know, maybe you need, maybe it's worth looking at a little, a little deeper. Indeed. Kiara, last but not least, because I can't believe this time has gone by so quickly, I would love to give you the opportunity to tell us what you're working on these days. That's exciting to you. If you're inclined to share, we will definitely wait with bated breath if you will not give us a preview. But if you're willing to, we would love to know what is on your desk right now. Yes. So I am. So what like, you know, gets me out of bed in the morning that I'm super excited to work on is um, an ethnography that I have been wanting to write and work on since at least um, 2016. Um, So my other degree um, is in anthropology. And so um, field work is kind of like our methodological, you know, our identity. And so I haven't had an opportunity to do field work um, since I got my PhD in 2008. So it's been a long time. And so, you know, my first book is an ethnography and it's um, I conducted field work in a public hospital 
in New York City in the obstetrics clinic. And so I was working with low income pregnant folks, you know, disproportionately folks of color. And I was analyzing how they kind of try to navigate these healthcare bureaucracies while maintaining their dignity. And it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to be poor, um, a person who's pregnant. Most of them were women. It was very hard to, to, to be a person of color and then maintain your dignity and your autonomy. And so I always um, wanted to do kind of like a follow-up um, to that, that study um, where I examined and worked with privately insured Black people who were pregnant, who were navigating healthcare bureaucracies, because a lot of the sense that's shared widely is that it's really people's poverty that is disadvantaging them. Like in my book, even though I was working with poor people of color, a lot of folks read it and was like, oh man, are you know, poor poverty is really terrible and poverty really is terrible. But what they were alighting was that racial disadvantage was doing a lot of work of disadvantaging the folks who I was working with. So in this ethnography that I'm working on right now, um, I conducted fieldwork and a private hospital here in the Bay Area. Um, I interviewed, I observed, I interviewed pregnant folks, providers, staff, the whole nine. And what I'm trying to do with et is ethnographically document how race continues to matter, um, even when one has class privilege. So I'm so excited about it. Um, I've already done the field work. I was doing the field work on my sabbatical. So I've had all this, all this rich data. Um, and now it's the process of sort of distilling, you know, identifying themes that course through and, and creating chapters and then researching the chapters and then writing them. And so it's kind of like my favorite part of, of this, this process. Mm, thank you, Kiara. I mean, that is just, it sounds critically important for one thing. Um, but I also can't think of a better person to be at the helm of that particular project. So I'm thankful that you are doing this work, not just that it's happening. And um, may you be inspired as you go along. Thank you. Thank you. And I am, I'm excited and I'll, I'll keep you posted. And maybe when the book is out, um, we can do this again. Hop on a podcast and chat it up. Yes, I would love that. Thank you so much for making time for us. You are such a treasure in the UC Berkeley community and the Berkeley Law community in particular. And uh, it's really my privilege to get to hang out with you for a little bit and just chit chat about the things we love. So thank you so, so much, Kiara. Thank you for having me. Let's do this again soon. <laughs> This season of Be the Change is a collaboration between Berkeley Law and the Office of Communications and Public Affairs at UC Berkeley. It was produced by me, Anne Bryce. To hear each episode, follow Berkeley Voices wherever you get your podcasts and look for the special Be the Change series. You can listen to the episodes and read the transcripts on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. You can also find Be the Change on Berkeley Law's podcast hub at law.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.